Welcome to the New York Historical Society's Public Programs Podcast, featuring lectures and conversations presented here at New York Historical's Robert H. Smith Auditorium. The New York Historical Society is a preeminent educational and research institution that is home to both New York City's oldest museum and one of the nation's most distinguished research libraries. This podcast, recorded live on Thursday, November 15th, 2018, is an Ann and Andrew Tisch Supreme Court Lecture. In this discussion, historian Richard Brookheiser discusses how founding father and chief justice of the U.S. Supreme Court, John Marshall, shaped American law and life. He is joined by constitutional scholar Akhil Ridamar. Well, good evening. Your virtue will be rewarded because we've, we've got really an extraordinary um, historian with us this evening. This is the, the New York um, Historical Society, and we're going to talk a lot about history. Rick and I have actually not rehearsed um, too much, so, so he's going to be hearing some of these questions for the first time. But, but since, since you've heard, he's written 13 books, and we're going to talk about the writing of history. Um, and in particular, he's a particular kind of historian. He's a biographer. There are different kinds of historians. Um, so I'm going to begin by asking him some questions about biography and history and the subject of his most recent biography. And by the end, we will work our way toward the Supreme Court, which is also, of course, um, one of the things that makes um, uh, John Marshall distinctive and this book for Rick distinctive because his previous books have not focused, I think, on the court to the same extent. So um, I'm going to ask you in just a bit to talk about Marshall in connection with um, five other people, four of whom you have, this is a verb, I believe, according to Miriam Webster, biographed, written a biography of. Um, By acclamation, really, uh, uh, there are six great men of the, the founding period, typically. The first four presidents, Washington, Adams, Jefferson, Madison, plus Hamilton and, and, and Franklin. That's sort of, I think, um, uh, by agreement, the first, uh, the top tier. The presidential placemat and the money. Ah, right, exactly so. Um, so, and, and, and Rick has, uh, as you just briefly heard, he, he's written an extraordinary biography of, of Washington. And not just of John Adams, but the Adams family, um, and a, a great one uh, about James Madison. I actually blurbed that one. Um, and uh, Alexander Hamilton, American. We'll, talk, we'll have to talk about Jefferson and why he hasn't quite done that. And, and Jefferson's relationship Jefferson's to this guy is, is complicated. <laughs> right. So, so we're going to talk about Marshall's relationship to, to those. I'm not sure there's much on Marshall and Franklin, but I'll ask you about that too. But before we talk about Marshall and these other great figures... Why Marshall? What's distinctive about him? You, you know, a biographer has to believe there's something special about um, his or her subject to, to devote so much attention to it. What's special about John Marshall? Well, what was uh, the particular impetus was that you told me to write this book. <laughs> that was... And Rick always takes my advice. It's well, always yeah, good. Yes, I do. Uh, you also told me to write my Lincoln book, and you gave me the title of it. So you're, you're batting two for two. But, you know, the reason I, I followed your suggestion, um, one reason is that I thought there was a, a, a gap. I mean, not an empty space, but a relative gap. Uh, Marshall is a very important man, but I think he's relatively underdone. Mm-hmm. There have been... Several biographies. Um, some, my favorite one won the Pulitzer Prize in 1918. It was by a senator named Albert Beveridge, and it's just a wonderful, uh, almost antique. They don't mm-hmm. write them like this anymore. He, mm-hmm. He's very partisan. I mean, he loves his subject. He bangs away. Uh, it's great, great read. But because uh, Marshall's... Four volumes? Four volumes, yes. <laughs> so because Marshall's career is the law... I think that frightens a bit writers and readers off. They, they fear that it might be technical. Uh, and for a biographer, there, there is a problem. Once you get Marshall to age 45 and you get him on the Supreme Court, then the next 34 years of his life, which is really why we care about him, because his career is chief justice, it's um, highlighted by a series of landmark cases. And so... These cases, they reach the Supreme Court sometimes after 
years of litigation and years of backstory before that. So Marshall, I mean, he's making very important decisions, but he's like the top of a mountain, you know, and there's been all this activity before it finally gets to him and his fellow justices. So the way I I decided to grapple with that in this book is just go with that and realize that that every consequential case, well, every case really, but all the ones I was going to write about are short stories. And just treat them like that. You know, try to keep enough momentum going that, that the book keeps going on, but just not be afraid to stop, back up, sometimes go back as far as the middle of the 18th century for a colonial charter that sets up Dartmouth College, you know, and then that doesn't reach the Supreme Court until 1819. But to just uh, to just do that. Um, so that's... And then why am I, why am I going through all this, not just that there's a relative gap with Marshall, but that the Supreme Court's always in the newspaper, Mm -hmm. right? I mean, someone asked me uh, a couple months ago, did I pay Justice Kennedy to quit in order to publicize (laughs) this book? And of of course not. Who could have foreseen the Kavanaugh hearings? But I foresaw something. Knew there'd be something, there'd be some Supreme Court decision that would be on the front page, maybe a personnel change that would certainly be on the front page. It's always on the front page. And why? I think this man is the first person who first put it on the front page. Yes, you provocatively um, subtitled the man who made the Supreme Court. Now, he's the fourth chief justice. There are folks before him. So we're going to come back to the Supreme Court at the end of our conversation, but just to give them a hint of that. And and next year, you see, is the 200th anniversary of the Dartmouth College case, which he, he he mentioned. So so just give us just tell us though now what are some of the cases that we're going to talk about before the end of uh, our our session today? What some of the, the the cases that you really the stories that you tell in in this book that are the most important that you want us to to talk about by the end? Well, I mean the most famous one is Marbury. We're all taught about that in school. Um, there are a series of cases that establish supremacy of the federal judiciary over state courts and also the federal government over state activities. Uh, Dartmouth is one such, McCullough versus Maryland, uh, Cohen's versus Virginia, Osborne versus Bank of the United States. But in thinking about this, what seemed to me to be the most consequential cases were the cases involving contracts and the one great case involving commerce. Uh, Fletcher versus Peck, the Dartmouth v. Woodward also is a contract case. And then Gibbons v. Ogden, the steamboat case, has to do with the Commerce Clause. And the reason I single those out is that, you know, when we think of the founder who is most responsible for the economic system we live in, more or less, we think of Hamilton, you know, especially after the musical. I like to think after our show here at the New York Historical Society. But, you know, we think of him, and rightly so. But his plans and his projects needed a legal armature to support them. And he was well aware of that himself. Uh, and that, a lot of that was supplied by this man and his court in a, in a series of key cases. They, they, they taught America that if you sign a contract, if you sign a contract in black and white, it's going to happen. You know, you, you can't weasel out of it, and nor should you fear that a state government is going to come in and and arbitrarily tear it up retrospectively. You know, if you do a deal, the deal's going to be done. And that that sort of rationalizes and regularizes transactions. And then looking to commerce, there is a a notion of a national market whose uh, oversight is the responsibility of the nation, of Congress, not of the individual states. So he's already told you just a little bit about Marshall's connection to Hamilton. He snuck in when he said the Marbury case. He didn't give you the full caption, of course, 1803 case about judicial review that you all remember as Marbury v. Madison, one of many interactions between Marshall and Madison. But before we get to Hamilton and Madison... Um, and this complicated character named Jefferson and the equally interesting, complicated personality of John Adams. Tell us about John Marshall's relationship to 
the indispensable man, George Washington, the, the ultimate founding father. Right. I think it's the most important relationship in his life, with the possible exception of his father, Thomas Marshall. Uh, he looked up to both those men. He revered them. Uh, and the, his own father and the father of his country kind of seamlessly, he made a seamless transition from one to the other. Uh, he volunteers uh, to fight in the revolution when he's 19 years old, in 1775. He volunteers for the Virginia militia, uh, and he's elected a lieutenant by his comrades. And then the following year, he and his father joined the Continental Army. Uh, he fights in three battles uh, where Washington is commanding, Brandywine in Germantown in the fall of 1777 and Monmouth in the summer of 1778. And between uh, Germantown and Monmouth, he was at Valley Forge, where Washington is also commanding. So he's seeing Washington in defeats. He's seeing him in a victory, which Monmouth in effect is, although it's technically a draw. And he's seeing him commanding the army at Valley Forge, which was this wasn't the coldest winter encampment of the war, but it was desperate because the troops were undersupplied, underclothed, and as always, unpaid. And his conclusion from these experiences was that Washington was the rock on which the revolution rested. This was the man who led it, held it together, made it happen. Uh, When Washington, at the end of the war, returns his commission to Congress, Marshall writes this letter to his old schoolfellow, James Monroe. And he says, at length, the military career of the greatest man on earth is closed. May happiness attend him wherever he goes. When I think of that superior man, my full heart overflows with gratitude. And that's, that's not ordinary talk. Uh, he, he is just imprinted with his image of this man. And he He continues to follow him in peace because when when Washington takes the lead at the Constitutional Convention, you know, presiding over that meeting, having made a decision that the the structure of the American government needs to be changed. It's not competent to perform its functions the way it is. We need a new framework for it, and the Constitution is the result. And Marshall, again, follows his lead. He's a delegate to the Virginia Ratifying Convention, pro-Constitution. And then the third thing, when he obeys him, Washington summons him to Mount Vernon for the 1798 election cycle, and he says, you know, look, the Federalist Party is, is, is suffering in Virginia. You've got to run for Congress. Marshall doesn't want to. He's a lawyer. He's making good money. You know, he's got a family. He's buying land. And uh, he and Washington are both surveyors. They're both, well... Of a, or his family. Right, his, his family, father. that's right. Um, his father and Washington were both surveyors for the same um, wealthy English nobleman who, who owned a chunk of Virginia as big as New Jersey. So you, you needed <laughs> surveyors. But, um, you know, Marshall, the story, the anecdote is that Marshall got so desperate at having to refuse the greatest man on earth that he decides, I just have to get up at the crack of dawn and leave. I mean, I can't do this anymore. But... Supposedly, Washington got up earlier and put on his uniform for the final request. So Marshall obeys him, uh, is elected to Congress, and it's from Congress that John Adams chooses him to be his Secretary of State when he cleans the Hamilton loyalists out of his cabinet, and then that's the launching pad to get him the job that counts. So that's a perfect segue to the second... And and, and I've... um, I've read these books by Rick, and I'm, I'm quite a fanboy. Um, and so that's why it was really exciting when I actually said, here's the next book I want you to write, and here's the one after that. And, and Rick actually has listed. So, so I, I do love your account of, 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 of Washington, but I also liked uh, very much your, your book on Adams, which wasn't just about John Adams, but the whole Adams dynasty, the Adams um, uh, clan. Um, but... Tell me about John Marshall's relationship to this very cantankerous, um, irascible, complicated um, second founder. Well, I think the striking thing about it... The man who makes him chief. Right, yes, exactly. Um, John Adams is the first person to have to figure out, what do I do with my predecessor's cabinet? You know, and there's, there's no precedent to 
nowadays, everybody, of course, resigns, you know, and the president has a free hand, even if he's going to reappoint some of these people. But, you know, so what does John Adams do? He keeps on Washington's second cabinet, which is really, you know, it's, it's not that great. Uh, the first cabinet is probably the best one we've ever had. By the end of the Washington administration, it's, it's much worse. The other problem is all of the men in it are much closer to Alexander Hamilton than they are to John Adams. They're his friends. Uh, and then this, this becomes a problem. Adams feels with some reason that they are taking more guidance from the former Treasury Secretary than they are from the president. And this, this eats at him. And then finally, with some ill temper, he, he fires his Secretary of State and his Secretary of War. And he asked John Marshall to be the Secretary of State, which is the more important job. And I think what's striking about this, as the Federalist Party runs into trouble and then becomes a minority party, what happens is what happens in a lot of political parties in that situation. They fall out among themselves. Mm-hmm. They begin fighting. And bitter, acrid fights. Um, if you saw the Hamilton show, there's a little scene at the end where uh, we briefly, John Adams, he doesn't appear, but Hamilton reacts to something Adams has done, and it's just an expletive, uh, which really characterizes their relationship. But what's striking about John Marshall is that he stays friendly with all these feuding Federalists, mm-hmm. all of them, uh, friendly with Washington till he dies, same with Hamilton, same with Adams, same with Timothy Pickering, who was the Secretary of State he replaced and who was a real piece of work. I mean, a very difficult man. Some good qualities, but just a self-righteous, prickly, difficult man. And Adams, uh, uh, rather uh, Marshall, is friendly with all of them. Mm-hmm. And uh, so he's happy to serve John Adams. Uh, he he, he um, ghosts uh, his what we would call his last State of the Union address, Uh, He works with him on a new Judiciary Act to make uh, the federal judiciary larger and more effective. And then in the lame duck of John Adams' administration, because he loses the election of 1800, he loses his rematch with Thomas Jefferson. And he gets word that the then Chief Justice Oliver Ellsworth has gout. He's unhealthy. He's going to quit. So Adams has to appoint someone else. And the man he nominates is the man who first held the job, John Jay, who was chief justice from 1785 to 95, a great patriot, diplomat, Federalist Papers author. And he sends Jay's name to the Senate, and the Senate confirms him. (laughs) Then he gets a letter from Jay saying, I'm not going to take it. Uh, The federal judiciary lacks uh, weight and dignity, weight, energy, and dignity. I'm not going to go back. Let's just pause to think about that. First, John Jay left the job, okay? He left it in 1795 to become governor of New York. Could you imagine John Roberts leaving to become, you know, governor of whatever state he's from? Indian. Conceivable. Okay. Couldn't. Or if he had left and then some future, you know, president says, oh, would you please come back? Could you imagine him saying, no, you know, I, I didn't like that job. Well, this was the status of the Supreme Court in those days. So Adams... Not just I don't like the job, but I can't imagine what anyone could do with it. You know, there's there's just not enough there to work with. That's right. (laughs) A few cases, um, they have to ride circuit over circuits, which are enormous. And, you know, transportation is terrible. Um, Jay called it in one letter, he called it intolerable. It's just intolerable. So we have to picture Adams sitting in his office in the, the... still unfinished White House. I mean, the outside is up, but the inside is just construction site almost. And he's sitting there with his Secretary of State, and he says, who shall I nominate now? This is Marshall's recollection. And Marshall said, I don't know, sir. And Adams thought a minute, and he says, I believe I'll nominate you. (laughs) So this is how this 45-year-old man gets this job. And it's not just because John Marshall is Mr. Wright, although he 
is. He's Mr. Right Now. Because you don't have time to send a letter to someone else who might say yes and might say no, because the clock is ticking down. Right. And, Tom, and, and, and Thomas Jefferson's about to be president, and so Adams got, has to get it done. That's right. And he has to, well, he's got to pick someone right there and hope... Who's going to say yes. Who's going to say yes and hope he gets them through the Senate. Yes. And there was a little slight balking about uh-huh. Marshall, but, you know, uh-huh. he did get through. And so, therefore, he's in a position to administer the presidential oath of office to his second cousin, Thomas Jefferson. Which is the perfect segue. Who is... Whom we haven't biographed yet, quite. No, but he, you know, he appears in every book, and he certainly appears in this one, because Thomas Jefferson hates John Marshall, and John Marshall hates Thomas Jefferson. And and he hates very few, and and Marshall hates very few people. Very few people. He's a very, you know, friendly fellow. Jefferson hates a fair number of people, but but Marshall is is right up there. Um, Marshall, well, Jefferson thinks that Marshall is a sophist, that he will um, take anything and twist it into a predetermined legal decision. He warns Joseph Story before he gets on the Supreme Court in 1811. He supposedly told Story, you must never give a direct answer to any question that Chief Justice Marshall asks you. If he were to ask me if the sun is shining, I would say, I don't know, sir. I cannot tell. This is Story's account, but still. Because he'll twistify everything. Twistify it. Twistifications. That's the word Jefferson uses in Marshall's reasoning. Marshall thinks Jefferson's a demagogue. You know, he talks a great game about he'll follow Congress's lead, but he'll manipulate it behind the scenes, and he will do that to boost his personal popularity and kind of ride the tides of opinion of the moment. Uh, He also hates him because he believes he stabbed George Washington in the back, that he was a disloyal Secretary of State, that he was carrying out administration policy with one hand but undermining it with the other, and then the killer is, was that in 1797, a letter that Jefferson had written to an Italian friend of his was published in Europe and then republished in the United States. And in it, Jefferson said, I could give you a fever if I were to describe men who've been Solomons in council and Samsons in the field, but whose heads have been shorn by the harlot England. And, you know, for a, the longest time, Jefferson's attitude to George Washington had been, he's a great, still a great man, good man. He's being manipulated by Hamilton. Isn't that a shame? But in this letter, he seems to be in code, but definitely referring to Washington because Solomon was a king and, and Samson was a judge. So that, that's certainly what John Marshall thinks. And four years later, when Alexander Hamilton is desperately trying to persuade Federalists to go for Jefferson rather than Burr in the deadlocked election of 1800. Uh, Marshall writes Hamilton and says, you know, you know Burr and I don't. I'll believe what you say about Burr. But the morals of the author of the letter to Mazai cannot be pure. And that's how Virginia gentlemen say he's dead to me. You know, there's just, there's no coming back from that for John Marshall. So they're, they're, they're teed up for, for a very pleasant eight years with Jefferson as president and Marshall as new, uh, new chief justice. Two things on that. One, you're, you are very loyal to, to Washington. Um, and so, I, you know, you and I haven't talked about why you've never written about Jefferson, but I think it might be hard because you think Jefferson did betray Washington just a bit. Well, yes. Look, I, I, I've come to warm to Jefferson, actually, over the years. And, you know, certainly I see a lot of flaws. But there there were some things he really got right. Obviously, he writes the Declaration of Independence in a way that makes it profound and immortal. But he also, he, he had this belief that ordinary people, most people, most of the time, will get most questions right. Mm-hmm. And intellectual though he was, he really seemed to believe that. He wrote one letter where he said a plowman and a professor mm-hmm. are equally able to solve a moral problem. Mm-hmm. I think he really believed that, even though he's much more like a professor than he is like a... Pl- I mean, he would say, oh, yes, I'm a 
farmer, farmer, of course, but he wasn't out there plowing himself, himself mostly. The slaves were doing that. But he, but he really did have this belief, and that informs his small-D democratic politics. And, you know, if he's right, then maybe America can be right. If he's wrong, we're in big trouble. So now here's the transition to Jefferson's um, real ally and henchman, the next president, his successor, his secretary of state, the man who basically succeeds Marshall right. in, in this position. Marshall succeeded Pickering as secretary of state, but when he leaves, um, it's, it's, it's um, uh, then secretary of state, later president, James Madison, um, Mar- uh, Jefferson's uh, um, uh, Robin to, to Jefferson's Batman, sort of. Um, but now, he, um, and I want you to talk a little bit about the very interesting relationship between the two, but also how, because Jefferson basically is a presidential dynast, he really is the person um, who who is followed by Madison and then Monroe. It's really his vision how the presidents are putting people on the Supreme Court, and they're more Jeffersonian, really, than they're quite in the model of, mm-hmm. of uh, Washington and Adams. So now, this guy's going to be chief justice, you said, for 34 years on a court that is increasingly going to be populated by Jeffersonian appointees. Right. So how's that going to work? And in particular... Um, what's his relationship with, with James Madison, whom you've also um, right. biographed? Well, the, the appointees, I mean, one of them, one of the very first, uh, Jefferson puts him on as Brockles Livingston, a New Yorker, and he's killed a Federalist in the duel. You know, he, he had a duel with a Federalist, and he shot him in the groin, and the man bled out in five minutes. And this didn't come up when he was confirmed. Um, <laughs> It's male privilege. You can be shot in the groin and bleed out in five minutes. Uh, but so, so the partisan balance of the justices on the court, when, when Marshall gets on it, there are six justices. They're all Federalists. In 11 years, thanks to Jefferson and Madison and people dying and retiring, and also the court has grown. Congress has added a justice because the country's growing. The partisan balance is two Federalists and five Republicans you know, which is quite a shift. But these Republicans, including Brockholz Livingston, they overwhelmingly uh, follow Marshall's lead. And, you know, so how did he do this? Uh, One of them, a man named William Johnson, he has a a correspondence with Jefferson years later, and, and they get into the subject of why this happened. And Johnson is saying, explains to the man who appointed him, well, there was, I experienced social pressure in the court. You know, when I got on, I thought if I had an opinion that disagreed with my, my colleagues or was slightly different, I could write my own, you know, dissent or my concurring opinion. But then they all told me uh, it's bad for all of us if justices are sniping at each other. You know, we really shouldn't do it. And so he says to Jefferson, I bent to the current. And that's one, that's certainly one thing that goes on. But what he Marshall helps champion, really pioneer this idea of the opinion of the court. Before he comes along, justices typically issued what are called seriatim opinions. Each person giving his uh, point of view, sometimes even orally, not actually written out, not always sort of recorded. And Marshall, when you, you know, the man who made the Supreme Court, so he, he make he turns it from a collection of of judges into a court to one with thing. one voice. Right. Often, and that voice is John Marshall's Often voice. Is, yes. Um, he will write for the court. Right. Um, and these opinions, will they'll be written out and they'll be published reliably and, and disseminated. So that's, that's one of Marshall's big contributions, right? Yes. And he, um, you know, there is this social pressure that Justice Johnson mentioned but I think, you know, pressure makes it sound too, too sort of coercive. Uh, Marshall, for one thing, is very genial. People, except for his cousin Jefferson, everybody seems to like him. Uh, Joseph Story, the first time he uh, heard him, Story was uh, arguing before the court as a lawyer. He was not yet on it. 
And he wrote someone, he said, I love his laugh. I love his laugh. And, and Marshall uh, had this, this gift for geniality. He, he encouraged all the justices to board together in the same rooming house when they came you know, from wherever they lived to Washington for a session of the Supreme Court. So for several weeks or a month, they'd be all together in the same rooming house. Uh, they'd talk over the cases after the day was done and over dinner. And, you know, they, they, they just got to be intimate and friendly. Uh, Marshall was deferential to justices who were expert in areas of law that he wasn't. And he would let them write the opinions on, you know, a subject like admiralty law that he wasn't as much up on as someone else was. But I, then I think the, the other thing is he's always the smartest one there. You know, and I think they feel that. They feel the power of this guy's mind. And these are all smart, legally acute people. But um, jo- Joseph's story is the Dane professor of law at Harvard, the author of m- multiple uh, multi-volume treatises on many areas mm-hmm. of law, just a, a true g- intellectual giant. Right. And yet he looks up to... He this looks up to Mark. Backwoods, uh, country, um, l- l- lawyer, self-trained, basically. Right, right. Well, um, William Wirt, who, was, who argued before the court and then ultimately became an attorney general, he said that Marshall's mind was like the Atlantic Ocean and everyone else's minds was like ponds. Now, that's, that's quite something from a very sharp legal guy. And then there was another man um, who described Marshall's mind as like some great bird. You know, it takes him a while to, to, to get in flight, and he flounders around on the ground for a while. But then when he, when he lifts off like a goose, I guess, you know, he's got this powerful, strong flight. And you have a feeling, reading some of these 9,000, 10,000-word opinions, there, there's just something almost relentless about them. They, you know, they start off and they move step by step and they don't leave anything out, but they just, you know, it's like a, it's like a train, even though trains have not yet been invented, but it has that sort of uh, force and propulsion. So you add all these things up and then you keep doing it for 34 years and, yeah, you're going to leave your, your mark on your uh, institution you're in. So a little bit more, please, on Ma- um, M- M- Madison. Madison in particular and his complicated relationship with, with Marshall right. over the years. And, and then I'll ask you about your favorite, Alexander Hamilton, America. Okay. Well, Madison, um, it kind of goes through phases because they're both at the Virginia Ratifying Convention, and there Madison is a leader. He's the leader of the pro-Constitution forces, and the fight in Virginia is very tight. Uh, Patrick Henry is the leader of the anti-forces, and he's the most eloquent man in America at the time. But Madison is... A bit of a demagogue. But, but, but he makes some good points. He makes some good points. And Madison uh, is one of the smartest men in America, so that's how he, he leads his side. And Marshall is, you know, a, a, an important secondary figure. So he's um, um, on the same side as Madison in that struggle. But then... When the first two-party system develops and Madison uh, follows the lead of his dear friend Thomas Jefferson, then there's a kind of a, you know, a cooling. And, of course, the Marbury case is Marbury versus Madison. And James Madison is the Secretary of State who has not done what he is supposed to have done, which is give William Marbury a commission that John Adams issued to him. He, he signed it, sealed it. It was in an envelope. It was ready to go. But it was sitting on a desk in the State Department when the new team comes in. And the new guys figure, we're not going to be your delivery boys. That's too bad. So, but William Merrick... And, and which clueless Secretary of State failed to get this thing out? It was John, it was John Marshall. Um, <laughs> yeah, so this is... Uh, w- w- could this case be heard in this fashion these days? Have standards for recusal um, shifted? Have you even you heard... There's a, there's a new um, uh, study out that, that suggests that John Marshall... They're called midnight judges because their seals are being applied, right, as one administration is ending... He says he gives it to his brother James to deliver, right. and James doesn't deliver it. But I've read a recent account saying James perjured himself and all oh, of that. It yes, was yes, never yes. sent out, and this was all a phonied-up case. And- you, know, you know my problem with that? 
it's trying to solve a problem that doesn't really exist because the, the author basically doesn't buy the story of what happened, and he finds it incredible. You know, how could it be that the, sec- you know, the president has made these commissions, the secretary of state has sealed them up. He that was tell- John, John, John Marshall. Marshall. He yeah. tells his brother James, James, here are these. Help me deliver them. You know, these are to be um, justices of the peace in the District of Columbia, so they're all like local guys, and some don't get delivered. So the author says, how could that be? So then he, as you said, has this elaborate explanation involving, you know, suborning perjury, John Marshall forcing his brother to tell a lie about how they didn't get delivered. But any transition of an administration is frantic Mm -hmm. and hectic. They just are. And certainly when it's going to another party and doubly so when this is the first time this has ever happened. Mm -hmm. This is the first switch of parties in American history. So this is, you know, this is new. Everybody must be, you know, the adrenaline must be flowing and they're, they've got confused feelings and all the rest of it. So I can well, un- in other words, I readily understand why, why some things slip through the cracks. So now these people had been allies, Madison and Marshall, getting the Constitution adopted. Madison kind of turns against, is, is not fully loyal to Washington by the end of the Washington right. administration. He sides with Jefferson, who's also not fully loyal. These guys win. They beat the John Adams, John Marshall team. Right. And so Marshall, he gets bumped upstairs, kicked upstairs to the, the Supreme Court, or at least sideways to the Supreme Court. Now there's this new Secretary of State named um, Madison who isn't delivering the commissions that he right. John Marshall failed to get out in time. That's right. And? So William Marbury um, sues for his commission, and he, he asks uh, the Supreme Court to issue a writ to the Secretary of State to tell him to do what he ought to have done. And the law that he's appealing to is the First Judiciary Act of 1789, which you know gave a lot of detail about the specific powers and responsibilities of different branches of the judiciary. And one thing it said was that the Supreme Court can issue a particular kind of writ to a number of people, including people in in positions of authority in the federal government, which would include James Madison because he's Secretary of State. Okay, so when the case finally gets argued, and by the way, Madison never appears. I mean, he refuses to defend himself because he sees correctly that this whole lawsuit is just an effort to make the administration look bad. And he doesn't want to dignify it by fighting back. But when Marshall reads his opinion, and he has to read it, uh, he can't read it in the meager little chambers that the court has in the basement of the Capitol because Justice Chase, one of his colleagues, has gout. and He's staying in a boarding house. So this opinion is read in the lobby of Stella's Hotel to accommodate Justice Chase. And it's huge. It's 9,000 words. It takes like over two hours to be read. And, uh, you know, Marshall, he goes through this, the, the issuing of the commission. He says William Marbury has a right to it because he has a right to it. Therefore, the law must supply him a remedy There's no such thing as a right you have that the law can't deliver to you. But this particular writ he cannot have because that provision of the Judiciary Act of 1789 is unconstitutional. The Supreme Court may not issue such writs to to employees of the federal government or people in positions of authority in the federal government. They don't have that kind of jurisdiction over those people. They have it over diplomats. If James Madison was an ambassador, yeah, he could issue this writ to James Madison, ambassador of a foreign country. But they don't have this kind of jurisdiction over a secretary of state. So poor William Marbury can't be a justice of the peace in the District of Columbia. So by denying his own court a power... power, he asserts this and, and c- cements uh, this, this larger idea that 
judges in general, not just the Supreme Court, but judges in general, can disregard laws that, that in their opinion, are unconstitutional, what we today call judicial right. review. Now, now, tell me if you agree with me, my, because my sense, and this is what we're all taught. I mean, I didn't even go to law school, but I think I learned this in, in high school. You know? But I read on Wikipedia that you were admitted to the Yale Well, yeah, but I didn't go. <laughs> I didn't go, but wasn't this idea already out there? Yes. I mean, it's not... John Marshall did not invent Correct. It was a familiar idea. Correct. Okay. The more interesting part of the case is the political part and not the judicial right. review part. Yes. Right. It, I mean, it's important because it's the first time it's done. But the By the Supreme out. Court right. as a whole, but lower courts had, had done, done it, it yes. and other courts okay. had done it. Yes. Okay. All right. Good. So I learned that lesson uh, correctly. So, And then how, how does their relationship yes. uh, evolve? Right. Well, I think Marshall is... He's certainly happy with one of Madison's appointees to the Supreme Court, who's Joseph Stewart. Correct. Uh, He will become, I think, Marshall's surrogate son. Mm -hmm. Marshall had a number of sons, and and he was was a good father and family man, but but none of them were at all on his intellectual level. And Joseph Stewart is 24 years younger, and he's... You know, as smart as John Marshall in, in a yes. different way, but yeah. their minds can really uh, a, a more interact. scholarly way, more scholarly, and also more. I think his intelligence was quicker. You know, if you like buttonholed story and said, "What do you think about Cones versus Virginia?" I mean, he'd, mm-hmm. he'd give it to you like right there, mm-hmm. and Marshall would have to think a while, mm-hmm. and then he'd really give it to you. But so there's, there's a kind of difference in the way their minds interact. Uh, and then, you know, when Madison is retired yes. and uh, there are first um, stirrings of secessionist sentiment or pre-secessionist sentiment over, you know, the controversy over Missouri in 1819-20. And then Madison writes an essay that's uh, printed in a, in a New England uh, magazine where he really, speaking in his role as one of the last of the founders and the father of the Constitution, he, he quashes this idea. You know, he just says no. To secession. Uh, so, right. No to secession, no to nullification. And he also says, and my great idol Thomas Jefferson did not believe this either. And people who try to say he did are wrong. And I know him better than they do. Um, maybe he's stretching the truth a little bit, but he is defending his great friend. And Which then, is what Jefferson asked him to asked do, him on, to do. On his deathbed. Take care of me when, when dead. I'm dead. Meaning my reputation. My reputation. And then Marshall's comment on all of this is uh, Madison's himself again. Good. He thinks, ah, here's the guy I was with in the Virginia ratifying convention. So these young Virginians who helped get the Constitution off the ground in the Virginia uh, um, uh, ratification debates reunite in, some, in their nationalism right. by the end. Right. Okay. Now um, tell us a little bit about uh, one of um, Marshall's other heroes. If, if George Washington is, was one hero, I would have thought that Alexander Hamilton is another real hero to Marshall. Yes, and partly because their minds are more similar because Hamilton is also a great lawyer, mm-hmm. which is something we've kind of forgotten. It's kind of dropped out of our portrait of him. But um, when Marshall, the only book Marshall ever writes is a biography of George Washington. And it's, um, he praises many other Federalists besides Washington. And of Hamilton, he says, he had a patient industry, which is not always the companion of genius which I think is a very shrewd compliment and a very high compliment. He just had um, great respect for Hamilton's mind and for his legal mind. And uh, Hamilton, of course, is, is killed um, young. Uh, in 1804, he's shot and killed in the duel. Uh, and, and Marshall, in later years, is able to use his arguments that Hamilton... Uh, made earlier in his career on legal matters. He, he quotes some of Hamilton's Federalist essays in various decisions of his. He yes. actually quotes whole paragraphs. Uh, he also, in Fletcher versus Peck, which is uh, one of my favorite cases because it is a contracts clause case, he's basically um, 
rewriting at much greater length a legal opinion that Hamilton had given one side in this dispute 15 years earlier, and it had been printed as a pamphlet. You know, it was out there in public. And uh, Marshall doesn't quote it, but his decision really tracks and elaborates Mm -hmm. all the steps of reasoning that Hamilton made. So um, they're kind of working together uh, posthumously because Hamilton is dead, but but they are, are working together to make uh, this Hamiltonian vision of an American economy something that's, that's legally um, defensible. Okay. Now, I've got lots of questions. I'll try to work them in, but um, just as a transition to them. Um, and uh, one question is, what can you tell us about Marshall as a person, his marriage, children, etc.? But I'm going to use that specific question uh, from the audience as a springboard to ask you just a broader question, since this is an historical society and we think about history and historians. Why do you choose, um, within the the broad genre of history, um, why biography? Um, Because there are different ways. You're a preeminent biographer. So what is it? You know that that inclines you again and again to to write uh, against a broad uh, 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 to paint on a broad historical canvas, but using um, uh, the, the, the personal story as as the way in which you're going to engage history. And and specifically, you know, what can you tell us about Marshall as a person, um, marriage, children, etc. Well, I guess I'm looking for fathers for one thing. And I found the founding fathers. Uh, history is made by people. Now, it isn't, it isn't just made by great men. And there's, there's a very interesting little chapter in Tocqueville's second volume where he says the temptation for democratic historians, with a small mm-hmm. d, mm-hmm. is that, you know, in aristocratic ages, you only have to look at a handful of kings and right. noblemen and whatnot. And what they do will control what everybody else does. Mm-hmm. But now, you know, everybody's in on the action. You know, everybody has some sort of a voice. And you have to be able to try and track all those different voices. And so the temptation will be, and I don't think he has Marx in mind. I think it's a little early for that, but he probably has Hegel in mind, the temptation will be to, instead of trying to figure out all these individual voices, to think of forces, right. structural forces, forces mm-hmm. that will you know, move everybody this way or that. Mm-hmm. And he says, he, he compares that to like being chained or being imprisoned, and he thinks that's just the wrong way to go. Mm-hmm. So, Industrialization, yes, globalization. Right, right, right. Or, you know, there are a lot of very sinister ones that people came up with. But so, you know, I'm trying to buck that. And, you know, I'm also trying, and I think in the Marshall biography, by paying attention to the litigants, I'm trying to get a little bit into the people who weren't necessarily the great men, just the ordinary people who, you know, they wanted something or they were afraid of being screwed somehow and they had to go to court either to get it or to defend themselves. And so where are they coming from? What are they, their problems? What are their preoccupations? And, and they're part of the story too because that's why all this stuff ends up in John Marshall's lap. And it seems to me that's the way, that's the way to look at it. It's the way that makes sense to me. And specifically about Marshall as a person, marriage, children, um, etc. Right. Polly, you know, oh, he yes. mentioned well, his sons who were good but not quite maybe Joseph's story, they were not. They were not, yeah. So I sort of I sort of um, uh, forecast the story with the sons, but you know, Marshall's marriage is very poignant. Uh, he met his wife when she was not quite fourteen. Uh, he he was uh, taking a furlough from the army and visiting his father, who was in Yorktown. And the next door neighbors were a family named Ambler, and they had these two girls who were almost um, fifteen and fourteen. And uh, they'd been hearing about this 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 young officer, you know, from his father, and he'd been reading his letters and all this. And they thought, oh, what a, what a guy! 
And then when he showed up, the older sister remembered thinking, oh, geez, look at him. Um, You know, he's slovenly. He never cuts his hair. He doesn't care what he wears. Uh, She had a bad first impression, uh, which she she, uh, changed as soon as he started reading poetry to them. And then she said, oh, he opened up the sublimity of the poets. But then she said, my younger sister, Polly or Mary, she decided, I'm going to get him. I'm going to set my cap at him, and I'm going to get him. And I'm going to go to my first ball. You know, she's never had a dancing lesson. I'm going to go to my first ball, and I'm going to get him. And this is what happens. So clearly as a girl, she had, you know, she had this, this energy and this will. Uh, and then they're married, and she, has, she loses several children to childhood illnesses. She has... Uh, at least one miscarriage. And this happened. This happened a lot in those days, but it hit her. It just hit her badly. And she became very soon a recluse. You know, she didn't want to meet strangers. She didn't want to go out. She didn't want to visit anyone because she'd have to stay in someone else's house. And she's married to this man who's, you know, who's gregarious, who, who likes people, who's in, involved in the law and also involved in politics. And, you know, so there's also tension built into this marriage. But he, he you know, he stays, um, he, he says that he delights in her company, that in private she was witty, uh, she had great taste in novels, they read books together. And certainly when she, when she dies, he's devastated. Uh, Story finds him uh, in his room in the boarding house, and he, he writes back home and says, I, you know, I could tell he'd been weeping. You know, and that's what he does when he's alone. He just weeps over her. So there's something, um, there's something very poignant about it and also kind of, kind of mysterious. Marshall didn't save a lot of his letters uh, and Polly's haven't survived, so, so we can only sort of surmise at a distance. Um, uh, Another question is, um, among the cases that you haven't already mentioned, uh, which other ones do you want us most to to know about? And um, uh, connected to that, your thoughts on the current Supreme Court. (laughs) Okay. Oh, okay. Uh, All right, I better talk a lot about the cases, shouldn't I? Well, the other one I really like, partly because the the backstory is so interesting, is Gibbons v. Ogden. Uh, It's the steamboat case, and it's a very New uh, York-related case. Um, The the man, the steamboat had several inventors. I mean, a number of people figured out how to put a, a watt steam engine on a boat and convert its motion into paddle wheels. But Robert Fulton not only figured out how to do that, he found a patron who was Robert Livingston, the Chancellor Livingston in New York. And, and Fulton um, demonstrates Same his steamboat. larger family as Brockholz. Yes, yes. There are many, many Livingstons. Uh, Robert demonstrates his steamboat in um, the Seine, where uh, Robert Livingston is the minister to France. And Livingston like sees this as an opportunity. He becomes Fulton's backer. He also becomes his political patron because what will really make this profitable is if it has a monopoly. And this is something Robert Livingston can arrange. So in 1808, the state of New York gives the two of them a monopoly on all steamboats in New York waters for 30 years. They all, three years later, they say, if there's any litigation, the boats of competitors will be impounded while the litigation goes on. So that's nice. And, of course, there's immediately litigation. Other people figure out how to build these boats, and competitors arise. And it, it's argued in New York State Court. Uh, the, the court rules in favor of the monopoly. Uh, sometimes they buy competitors off. There's some uh, businessmen in Albany, and, and so the monopoly says, all right, we'll give you Lake Champlain, but we're going to keep the Hudson. Uh, and, and so on and on it goes. But I, ha- I have to tell the story. I've got to tell the story of of Mr. Gibbons and Mr. Ogden. Ogden is another licensee of the monopoly. They, they let him run a boat into Staten Island from New Jersey for $600 a year. He's a partner of the monopoly. Then he himself has a partner, Thomas Gibbons, and that partnership works for a couple of years. But then there's a problem in Gibbons' family. 
a rumor gets abroad that his daughter has slept with her fiancé. And Gibbons' solution to this problem is that he and his wife and his daughter should all together sign an ad in the newspaper saying that this isn't true. <laughs> Apparently it was true, but this is father's father knows best. His partner, Aaron Ogden, thinks this isn't such a good idea and, and tells him so, and Gibbons is so enraged that he comes to Ogden's house one day with a bullwhip, and uh, Ogden has to escape out the back door and he sues Gibbons for trespass. This is the end of the partnership. (laughs) So now Gibbons hires as his captain a young man from Staten Island, Cornelius Vanderbilt, who has no education, but he's ideally suited for this job. He builds a secret compartment in the center of his boat so that when the process servers come aboard, he can hide in there, and no one can serve a process on (laughs) it. He plays cat and mouse with the cops in New York Harbor. He's dispatched to Washington to hire counsel, who is Daniel Webster. So they have one of the best lawyers in the country. The case goes to the Supreme Court. Webster makes an argument that the commerce of the United States is a unit e pluribus unum, and that's why states cannot interfere with it. Even if Congress hasn't passed a law, they can interfere. And he says... Marshall bought my argument, took my argument in like a baby taking its mother's milk. Well, he didn't quite. I mean, he, it's a long decision. He says, he repeats Webster's argument, the essentials of it, says, I'm not sure it's been refuted. But then the reason he strikes down the monopoly is on a lesser point, which is that Gibbons's boat had a coasting license, which simply identified it as an American boat, not a foreign boat. But Marshall says, got a license, that's a license to do something. So if you have a coasting license, you could take your boat, you know, even into Staten Island. And the result of this is that the number of uh, boats in New York waters quadruples. And this is thought of somewhat inaccurately, but I think spiritually, yes, as the beginning of the notion that the American market is a unit uh, that Congress oversees common market. Now, I've got time for one. I'm, I'm going to cheat. I'm going to bl- blend. I, I wish we could do all of them, but I'll, I'm, I'll blend two together. What are the biggest misconceptions about Marshall's tenure on the court, and how, if at all, did he evolve or change um, over the years on the court? I'll do the second one first. Uh, he changed, or he had to change, because the court changes around him. Uh, there does come a time when he begins to lose control over it. Mm -hmm. There are justices who join it who are not as amenable as the earlier ones. Uh, There are personality issues. um, There are ideological issues. Uh, He's also facing a president, Andrew Jackson, who not only disagrees with him, but is uh, much more uh, forthright and determined, really, than Jefferson was. Mm -hmm. Uh, So... When, by the time Marshall dies, I, I think he feared that he'd failed, uh, that, that there were forces afoot in the country which might tear it apart, you know, and he'd, he'd spent his life on this defense of the Constitution, but maybe it hadn't worked. So, but then, um, uh, what was the other one, the first one? Um, uh, how did he e- evolve, and what are the biggest misconceptions? Oh, biggest misconceptions. Well, maybe um, I'm kind of arguing against myself here. Um, maybe a big misconception is that the court today is exactly what Marshall envisioned and how he left it. Now, it is that in the sense that it is a peer of Congress and the president. You know, there, there are three branches of government, and they are, all, they are all peers. They're no longer meeting in the basement of the Senate, which is where Marshall was being, or in, you know, right. giving opinions from hotel rooms. Right, and they're no longer, you know, no longer are chief justices saying that the federal judiciary lacks energy, weight, and dignity. Those days are done. Do justices interpret the Constitution the way Marshall did? And I'm just going to leave that as a question. Now, partly it's because um, I would say Marshall uses two techniques. He will either rely on the literal meaning of the words or he will 
or in, in addition, he will rely on what was in the founders' minds when they put these words in the Constitution. What were they worried about? What were they thinking about when they wrote, um, say, the Contracts Clause? So there's like originalism of words and originalism of intentions. Now, of course, originalism for John Marshall is his own life, right? You know, because... You know, he saw all this happening. He was there. He knew all these people. He's at the Virginia Ratifying Convention. So it's not like he has to look back very far. And, you know, a case can be made that, well, we're too far after that. We can never recover that. We shouldn't even try. I guess the the counter-argument to that would be, yeah, but we're not talking about Alfred the Great, really. I mean, you know, it's gone, but it's only like four degrees of separation back there. Uh, And it's not even Shakespearean English. It's still recognizably our English. So maybe it is possible to recover those tools that Marshall himself used. And I'll just leave that as um, food for your thoughts. Thank you for listening. To learn more about current exhibitions and live programming, Follow the New York Historical Society on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at NY History, or visit us at nyhistory.org.